0: Welcome. This is Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. I'm Satara Jack.
1: I'm Indio Miles. This episode of Making a Difference has been produced by journalism students at Griffith University on Yagara, Turubal, and Yugamba country.
0: In this episode, we'll bring you stories about people making a difference in their communities and communities working together to make a difference for each other. First up in the programme, with much of Australia opening its borders and coming out of lockdown, there's increased attention placed on lower rates of vaccination in some First Nation communities. Rates of immunisation and the spread of correct health advice are key to protecting small-town populations from COVID. With campaigns led by the community for the community, respected members are taking matters into their own hands. Here's Tani Maxwell with more.
2: We were fully aware of it. We were looking at a lot of different ways of, of um, preventing it coming. But once it did hit, it came through like a cyclone.
3: That's Brendan Adams, an active community leader and manager at local radio station in Wilcannia, a small town in northwestern New South Wales. After recently experiencing their first wave of COVID 19 in the community, this brought attention to just how devastating the impact could be on communities inclusive of predominantly First Nations people. Both Brendan and Robert Clayton at Wilcannia River Radio are dedicated in creating initiatives that are alternative and encouraging in hopes to uplift their community and provide health information in simple and effective ways. Brendan harnessed the effectiveness video messaging has within the community in a time when many could not support each other in person due to restrictions.
2: The videos of... Being, you know, make sure you get tested, not just once, but continue to get tested. Um, encouraging the vaccination, uh, you know, as well, because there was different level uh, misinformation about the um, the vaccination. So, get, give them the right information. And that also also presenting about all the um, you know the rules to lockdown, the you know about social distancing.
3: Alongside Brendan, Robert created a photo campaign focusing on uplifting and restoring positivity and a sense of community in Wilcannia.
4: So I so said, how, how, how do you talk without talking? So I said, well, you know, how about we do the um, whiteboards with messages on it and show the faces of, of the community members. And, you know, like an expression on your face can can explain a lot more than, than you sitting on the phone or you sitting behind a desk on radio talking about these issues, and, and so, you know, they say a picture says a thousand words, so I thought that would be a, a better way to get it out there, and, you know, so just got people to express how they felt about the COVID, and I, I went around to people, and I just said, look, you know, if there's something that you would like to say to your family member that you can't go and see now, what would you say to them, and that was a lot of what they just said, you know, stay safe, look after yourself, and, you know, and look after your your family, because that's what... Kenya's uh,
3: all about. From Wilcannia, New South Wales to Darwin Northern Territory, First Nations community leaders and organisations have stepped up to the forefront of being advocates for health information and the vaccination push. Melilma May is a Dungalaba woman and the co-founder of Uprising of the People, an organisation empowering First Nations people and community members across the Northern Territory to address issues that affect the community. Uprising of the People recognised the positive impact social media can have on others and actively campaigned using TikTok, Facebook and Instagram.
5: Okay, this is legit. I've seen it on TikTok. TikTok's this big thing in the interweb, so it must be real. And that's no fault of the people who are consuming that, but it also ends up becoming quite dangerous when people are just consuming information without challenging it and without critiquing it. So that's why we had to jump into this big black hole of TikTok and Facebook and Instagram to counteract that messaging. And if we have this cohesive message across the board and we have athletes like there's been a lot of AFL players who have been really supportive of Danila Dilber and like the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service getting those role models and those positive strong people up there saying hey I've been vaccinated I'm fine then it's showing that it's safe and if we can pose our information by trusted people as well Then it's like, oh, my cousin got that and they're fine. Oh, my niece got that and they're fine.
3: Along with social media campaigns, Uprising of the People used fashion as a statement to get their message across to the community.
5: My very staunch aunties were like, we just need t-shirts that say plain and simple message. The Larrake want you vaccinated and people can do what they want with that information. But we've got it here on our shirt and we can wear it around town. And it helps our mob understand. It's been really effective because I've had so many people messaging Uprising and said, hey, I saw your shirt. Where can I get one? Hey, I saw this fellow across the street wearing one of these shirts and blah, blah, blah. So it's sparking conversation. Fashion is a great way to get messaging across. And also, when you're wearing a piece of clothing that you feel really proud in
3: and that you're like, yes,
5: this looks so good on me and I agree with the messaging, it makes people be proud too.
3: As Australian state borders look to open back up in the next coming months, there's still plenty of work to be done to ensure First Nations people's health is protected and keep communities safe.
5: Yes, it's scary because we don't trust the government, but our healthcare professionals, Danila Dilba, Congress, Malala, Kalis, like all these organisations who've lived and worked in communities for decades are confident in the vaccine and so we can be confident in the vaccine as well because it's not about the individual, it's actually about our babies and it's actually about our elders. The cure for our community
2: is you. It's you as a person, as an elder, a father or mother, a young person. You know, it is up to us to make the right decisions. Your decision is the power that can stop the COVID from coming into your community.
0: That's Brandon Adams from Volcania River Radio speaking with Tani Maxwell.
1: Australia still has a long way to go in accepting Muslim migrants, with a recent report from the Human Rights Commission finding 80% experienced discrimination related to religion, race and ethnicity. This is being combated in a variety of positive ways, as Satara Jatt has discovered.
6: And although we were out of the White Australia policy time, it was very much a White Australia that I grew up in. As a kid, I was always quiet about my son. It was something that I kept to myself. It wasn't something that you wore on your sleeve because you were conscious of being already the one brown kid. But then if you're the brown
0: kid and the Muslim kid, it was just too many stories, too many explanations. That's first-generation Australian Muslim named Chopra, a published author and cross-cultural consultant. She's a prominent activist fighting for diversity and has been nominated an anti-racism champion by the Australian Human Rights Commission She's provided two decades of services as a cross-cultural consultant within the local and international community. Despite her fight for diversity, Australia is a country that unfortunately holds strong anti-Islamic and discriminatory views of Australian Muslims. A study conducted by Pew Research Centre in 2019 found at the top of the list of global concerns Islamist extremism ranked highest in Australia just under climate change. These negative associations between Muslim communities in Australia and radical terrorist organisations has partly been an unfortunate consequence of radical Islamist terrorism, dominating attention over other forms of political violence. Griffith University Associate Professor of Islamic Studies, Halim Rain, explains.
7: There is uh, a small number of Muslims in Australia who have engaged in you know, acts of terrorism. There was one report in Time magazine that said that in 2014, Australia had the highest number per capita of Western exports to uh, fight for ISIS. Now, we're, we're a relatively small country with a relatively small Muslim population. but So it's talking about the per capita. There is a problem there. So we need to address this, this problem of um, state terrorism, I think, if we're going to address the problem of non-state terrorism and extremism.
0: The 2019 survey, Islam in Australia, conducted by Professor Halim Rain and his team, found a majority of Australian Muslims reject any links between the religion of Islam and violent extremism.
7: Overwhelmingly, Muslims in Australia completely reject violence. They reject you know, attacks on innocent civilians and that sort of thing. We asked um, our survey respondents whether they think Islam uh, allows for fighting against or, or attacks against uh, civilians. And uh, we said, you know, is this permitted in Islam? And we had something like 90% say Islam never permits this. And this was even found among Muslims who we classified as being political Islamists.
0: In July this year, the Australian Human Rights Commission found 80% of Australian Muslims have been discriminated against, yet three quarters say they do feel Australian. The report further mentioned community solutions to overcome anti racist and anti Islamic sentiments through community engagement, public awareness education, visible allies, and increased representation of Australian Muslims in the media. Some communities, such as the Ismaili Muslim community, show social cohesion by partaking in the community and volunteering in various different projects. Hazen Jamadia telling us the projects the Ismaili community participates in.
8: As a Ismaili Muslim in the community, I think one thing which we'd like to sort of spread awareness of is, you know, we're all one community. And I think that's very important. At the end of the day, it is about sharing love with one another and just doing good in the world. I think that's what's really needed. What we do a lot, quite a bit, is because a huge focus is placed on service and doing things for others in need. A big focus we place is just in any sort of community service we can around Australia. So one of the things, a good example, I guess, is, you know, last week or the week before, I believe, we went for tree planting.
0: This campaign, aiming to eliminate misconceptions about Islam, promote interfaith communications and education. An example of that is a national campaign known as Muslims Down Under run by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, promoting social cohesion between interfaith communities. Here's the editor-in-chief, Muhammad Adai Rabbi Hadi.
4: The seven values that we basically present, absolutely universal, uh, something that you don't have to be a religious person to agree with, something that people would, you know, automatically agree to. So by presenting those values, we say that, look, based off of this, you can see that there are no differences between you and I. And there are far more similarities between us. So from that, uh, we then try to broach a conversation and we try to tell them that, look, since there are so many similarities, for the sake of social cohesion, for the sake of trying to bring people together, how about we have a conversation? And then we obviously have different services to try and bring about that conversation to cater and tailor or provide an opportunity for those conversations to be had.
0: Gandhi once said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And in this instance, Australia, a change can be a conversation away. Perhaps we really are not all that different. If you're interested to find out, take that step. Reach out to your Muslim neighbours within your community or simply meet an Australian Muslim on www.muslimsdownunder.com
1: Thanks to Satara Jad for that story.
0: This is Making a Difference, a junction journalism production produced by journalism students at Griffith University. While national radio stations tend to get their ratings for local matters, one in five Australians tune into community radio instead. These newsrooms mould up incoming creative professionals and communicators through practical experience and training. But what influence does experience in a community radio station have, and would a world without these stations jeopardise creative industries? India Miles reports...
1: We rely on creative industry professionals every day. Whether they are writing our news bulletins, creating beautiful art or entertainment that sparks joy, practical experience for someone seeking to enter the creative industries is key for developing a broader range of skills that also provide room for specialisation. Not many experiences, however, provide as extensive training as a community radio station where many creatives seek to cut their teeth. University of Adelaide alternative media researcher and community radio specialist Dr. Charlotte Bedford has been involved in the sector as a researcher and practitioner for over 30 years. In her most recent co-authored study, Community Media Destinations, Spotlight on Creative Industries, subjects described how their prior experience in community radio became crucial towards starting a successful career.
9: Everybody that we spoke to recognised the rich and varied contribution that their experiences with community radio initially had made to their career trajectory. They described it as their stepping stone into their careers and employment that would not have happened without community radio.
8: So I owe my whole career in journalism to 4 Z. I was given the opportunity immediately, an hour after I walked in the door, to start presenting or reading the Z-lines, so the news headlines that I'd written myself. I had no idea what I was doing. I was right in the deep end. I was terrified, but I learnt so fast. That's Brisbane community radio station 4ZZZ manager Stephen
1: Stockwell, who we'll hear more about shortly. Providing accessible and localised information that other larger outlets cannot has for generations placed community radio stations at the heart of towns across Australia. People with a variety of experience are able to volunteer their time. And community radio has garnered a reputation for providing training to young professionals. While these tangible skills are invaluable. Dr Bedford identified another key lesson learned by community radio station volunteers.
9: But what was really beautiful for me was really hearing those stories of the social responsibility and how their involvement in community broadcasting had really deepened those social values and carried them through the other projects that they had gone on to develop as creative industries practitioners.
1: Instilling these values within volunteers early on creates storytellers guided by empathy and community sustainability. Working on the grassroots level with diverse audiences... Teaches aspiring communicators how to make more
8: authentic connections. I think one of the things that has set me up from community radio is that I was taught values quite early on, and you're in a very accountable journalism position from basically the beginning of your career. So you're constantly talking to the people who the story is about. You're very accountable to them about how that story is told and their response and their feeling about it. So you need to do a good job. You also need to be presenting fair and balanced journalism, and it teaches you kind of the values of the people around you as well. So community radio is very diverse, and I developed an understanding of the diversity of communities, the issue that marginalized groups face, and the importance of giving them a voice, which really informed and drove my passion for journalism, I think, as well. What that has meant is that instead of me going into a newsroom straight out of uni and not understanding the kind of humans at the other end of the microphone or the other end of the phone when I was doing stories, I really knew what a story was about and what was important to people. Stephen, after
1: a career involving stints at respected outlets, including Radio National and ABC Hack, has come full circle, returning once again to 4ZZZ in a managerial role. He's excited to help secure the role of community radio in Australia and wants to give back to the station that has made him the journalist he is.
8: Community radio in 10 years is going to be really different from what it was 10 years ago, what it was 30 years ago. I'm quietly hopeful that community radio will kind of come back a bit. I'm actually really worried about journalism if those opportunities go away, because I don't think that the mainstream media are giving young reporters and young presenters and young producers opportunities to develop in a way that, teaches them how to care.
9: This was a pilot study to get some broad themes and guide our next stage in the research. And so over the next 12 months, we've committed to exploring the impact of formal training in community media. So we'll be able to get more of a picture of What the progression is from formal community media training, how that contributes to media careers.
1: Dr Bedford's remarks indicate a growing desire to grasp the impact of community radio on not only the communities they report for. The talented creators who walk into their local radio station for the first time are beginning a critical journey, but not just to become any standard reporter, instead, volunteers in community radio become a compassionate, community-minded professional.
8: Community radio is just such a hugely important part of our media landscape and is a really underappreciated glue that stitches our communities together. I hope it survives and I hope people continue to have the opportunities that I've had to learn how to tell stories and, and represent those communities.
0: If you'd like to find out more about the Community Media Destinations Research, check out the Community Media Training Organisation's website at www.cmto.org.au.
1: Seaweed has played a quiet but vital role in humans' lives for hundreds of thousands of years. This superplant is responsible for keeping the oceans healthy and providing homes to a variety of ecosystems and fisheries. Humans have used it for food, medicine, clothing and shelter. With the warming of our oceans, seaweed is now in peril. But ironically, it could also be the solution.
10: The Aboriginal peoples of Australia were some of the first in the world to utilise seaweed's potential. Over 65,000 years ago, seaweed was being used here for medicine, clothing, ceremonies and food. It can grow quickly, does not require any assistance like fertiliser or weeding, is easy to harvest and it's cheap. Seaweed is one of the hardest-working plants in the world. Nick Hill, co-founder and CEO of Coast for Sea, knows seaweed's potential and works to conserve and bolster seaweed farming around the world.
2: Seaweed is like a miracle plant um, organism. I think um, it grows so much faster than any terrestrial plant, and it absorbs carbon
4: from from the water, which can help reduce uh, locally reduce um, the impacts of climate change, such as ocean acidification,
2: deoxygenation, and it provides habitats in its growth. There's no, unlike terrestrial plants as well, you don't take up land space, you don't need fresh water, you don't need um, herbicides or pesticides or fertilisers. So there's no inputs required as such beyond the actual planting materials itself. And then it can be used um, in a very broad number of industries, across a very broad number of industries. On one hand, it could actually replace petrochemical plastics, and you can make biodegradable plastics from, from seaweed. You can use it as a fuel, it can be for food, feed, fertiliser, and then the nice thing about it is if you're planting it in coastal
4: areas, many of the runoff that comes from those terrestrial systems are then taken up by by the
2: seaweed as well, so that can help to reduce the uh, eutrophication as well as climate change.
10: Dr Pia Winberg is the CEO and founder of Venus Shell Systems, one of two companies in Australia that farms seaweed on land and uses its crops to make a variety of products, from protein-rich muesli to potential skin grafts.
2: Seaweed uh, has been an important part of the human diet for centuries, well, thousands and thousands of years, but we've forgotten how to eat it. Many, many different species, but our species, for example, can be up to 40% protein. So you can grow more protein on a hectare than a cattle farm. You can grow more nutrients than on a spinach uh, broad acre farm. So it's a really, if we can get, you know, 10% seaweed back in the human diet, will be saving people's health, and will be saving planetary health.
10: By incorporating seaweed into our diet, we could help fight a range of life-threatening ailments, but also reduce the huge carbon footprint our food industry has on our planet.
2: So there's many things that um, we're lacking in the Western diet, and often uh, our chronic health diseases aren't because of what we eat, it's because of what we're not eating. And and so some of those things are life-threatening, things like iron deficiency, is still the cause of 20% of maternal death in many countries. Iodine deficiency, people know about iodine in seaweed. It's still the leading cause of brain damage in the world. Um, and so those are the kind of trace elements that never run out in the ocean, but they are running out in the soils in our agriculture. And so a bit of seaweed every day in food just puts back that diversity of minerals and things that you then don't need to have a supplement for. We're going through a lot of climatic shifts in the oceans as well as in the air um, and that means that the range of different seaweeds are, are moving south as the water warms up further south. This means we actually are losing a number of um, our seaweeds and kelp forests in particular.
10: Due to its ability to trap carbon and purify the water around it, seaweed can also be a practical solution to its own demise. For example, take the Great Barrier Reef, for example, and all the struggles that the Great Barrier Reef is facing.
2: There's ocean acidification and deoxygenation on the one hand, which seaweed can help with, um, if you put that in the right places. There's all the uh, problems with with runoff um, from terrestrial, agricultural systems and so on, um, and seaweed can help ameliorate some of those pro- um, issues as well. So I really hope it will become part of the, um, part of the lexicon of tackling both climate change and other, other threats um, to the ocean and to the marine
4: resources that surround Australia.
10: As a land girt by sea, Maybe we can look to the wisdom of our past and start using this weed for a lot more now.
1: Thanks to Jasmine Camp for that report.
0: Animal assisted therapy isn't a particularly new concept, but it has received fresh attention as many people in lockdown choose to adopt a pet to keep them company. Aaron Norton spoke with a psychologist who specialises in animal focused treatments and to a few people who decided to add a pet to the family since COVID disrupted their lives. Without a doubt, the lockdowns
6: over the past 2 years have taken a toll on everyone, but for some, adopting a furry friend into their family has been a silver lining to the whole experience. At the beginning of last year, Charles decided to train a black labrador called Wren to become a guide dog. Thanks to Charles' care and dedication, she has now been accepted into the official guide dog school and is well on her way to becoming top of the class.
7: Well, I think COVID was a really strange situation for a lot of people, I think for me included. You, you become very isolated, living by a lot of people living by themselves. A dog, especially, is very good to have around as a companion. Just have, having a little bit of that company, I think having to care for an animal extends that locus of control. I think it takes away some of the, the kind of worries that we can have ourselves if we're just kind of isolated, whereas where you're kind of caring for something else, it takes a little bit of that out of your hands and, and just gives you something to do. I think that that feels like it's it's you know a little bit worthwhile.
6: Ella, who recently adopted a pair of mice during lockdown, told me how the responsibility of looking after them has helped her get into a steady routine. During the
3: pandemic, they gave me a lot to look forward to um, in the mornings because I knew that no one else was going to get up and feed them and clean them and do everything else that they needed done for them. I guess for everyone, the pandemic sort of took a big toll on my mental health. I was struggling with study. I was struggling with work and everything else that goes on in life. So having like a need almost to get up in the mornings was really great. Joey is another
6: story of a pet success. After adopting her white cat Val at the beginning of lockdown, Joey found a lifelong companion and a new best friend to confide in. She quickly realised that having Val around had an incredibly positive impact upon her mental health.
3: I adopted her because I'd gone through a bad breakup during lockdown, and I wanted a friend. It's nice to feel loved by a little friend, and especially when um, you can't really, can't physically hang out with anybody. It's nice to have
6: someone to talk to. Animals can be more than just companions; they can have immense benefits towards our mental health and well-being. I spoke to Michelle Faboco, a clinical psychologist from WAGS, a private clinic in the outer suburbs of Brisbane that uses highly trained therapy dogs to assist their patients. Michelle and her team at Labradors cater for a wide variety of physical and mental health issues.
7: We know there's lots and lots of research out there that says that patting an animal makes you feel good, makes you feel more relaxed. So people aren't usually coming to see me to talk about the good things in their life. So if they're going to have to talk about tough stuff, if they can sit on a couch and, and pat a dog at the same time to help them relax um, within their body, then it might make the process a bit easier.
6: Whilst developing this story, I received a text message from my twin sister, Millie, saying that she had gotten a dog called Kimba. She told me a little bit about the process and how Kimber is going to be trained to do the best job possible. Personalities are nice. They um, temperament test everything. So you have to go through training with the dog as well. So you have to be trained as well. So they take you out in the public and stuff like that and do temperament testing on the dog and you to see if you're a compatible Fit. While pets can provide a great source of comfort, just remember that they can be a big commitment.
0: And that finishes the show. For more of the best stories in student journalism around Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com.
1: And don't forget, there's a new episode of Making a Difference every month. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.